series with Surrogacy Australia. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen and in turn for helping us spread awareness and appreciation for surrogacy. I'm your host, Anna Mackay, and these recordings are from a regular webinar series that I run. You can find upcoming dates on our website at surrogacyaustralia.org. During the one-hour webinars, I will walk you through the surrogacy process in Australia and you can type in questions for us to answer. My co-hosts have all done surrogacy in Australia and they alternate between surrogates, gay dads and straight mums. This episode, recorded in November 2021, features Trudy. Trudy and Tom became parents to their daughter, Bonnie, in August 2020. Bonnie was carried by their surrogate, Sarah, who is Tom's sister. Sarah lives with her husband and their two children in New York, meaning this was one complex surrogacy journey. Sarah came to Australia for the embryo transfer in Sydney in November 2019, but the heartbeat and 11-week scan were back in New York City, with Trudy and Tom on FaceTime at 4am Sydney time, then a visit back to Australia at 14 weeks to witness Trudy and Tom's wedding, which was also a gender reveal, and then COVID hit. Sarah and her family flew to Sydney at 34 weeks pregnant and straight into hotel quarantine. They were reunited at 36 weeks and they got to see their baby in person at a scan for the first time. Trudy also induced lactation and was able to directly feed Bonnie. They used FaceTime for catch-ups and were looking forward to catching up in person as soon as travel restrictions allowed it. At the time of recording of this episode, they had embarked on a sibling journey, but this time using an agency in the USA. In this episode, we hear how Trudy had a DNC after their first round of IVF and ended up with Ashermans, which brought her to surrogacy. As well as hearing her surrogacy story, we answer questions which viewers type in covering topics such as the overall cost of surrogacy, laws in different states, how IVF cycles work, and the importance of making friends from within the surrogacy community to help you feel less alone. I hope you enjoy this episode. So Trudy, we're going to have a look at what your happily ever after looks like. And so I'm going to take you through some of the photos that you've got here. So maybe perhaps telling us a little bit, bit about the journey as we go through that. Is there anything you wanted to say at the beginning about what brought you to surrogacy? Yeah, so I was going through IVF myself to try to have a baby with Tom. And um, we were quite lucky we got pregnant first go. Um, and, and, and that was mainly because of my age was why I was doing IVF and I had and like mild endometriosis and, um, polycystic ovaries. Um, but we got pregnant first time, which was amazing, but then we had a miscarriage at about eight weeks. And, and so I had a DNC and then tried to do another transfer after that. And my lining just never grew enough to to do a transfer and and so then I my specialist sent me to have some surgery to check out what was going on it turns out the DNC had caused me to get a condition called Asherman syndrome and that's basically when when they do the DNC they just take too much so they take your lining as well as other bits that don't grow back um, and it's permanent damage so um, they use the word surrogacy for me and I just about died I was yeah horrified that that had happened one one go at IVF you thought yeah oh, one 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 transfer <laughs> so it was it was heartbreaking and I yeah. imagine so needing a DNC because you have to remove the child to save your life otherwise it's going to 
you can't stay in you but having that procedure I mean I guess the doctors do the best they can don't they but things can go wrong that's right it's they they give you all the risks I think you know they they go through your the disclaimer of you know this could could happen um but it's the same as when you get your wisdom teeth out you go oh that's not going to be me you know I'll I'll be fine um and and a lot of the times the DNC can actually benefit from it because the you actually become a little bit more fertile after it apparently so I was you know it was a big decision to make and I think I probably made it a bit hastily but that's in hindsight of course but um yes. you know if, if it wasn't for that I wouldn't have discovered the world of surrogacy either yes. but um yeah I, I must admit I I didn't really um, I'm an incredibly determined person so I, I sort of thought I'm going to prove you wrong doctor <laughs> and I worked very very hard over the next sort of 12 18 months to try to prove them wrong and um, I tried many many rounds of IVF after that to try to do it myself but just didn't have any luck I'm afraid. Yeah, I might come back to some of that stuff. So let's go through your photos now. So then this is Tom's sister, which I, even though I'm sure you probably get from time to time that you two look alike. As people have said that all the time. She looks yeah. like my sister. That's right. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so she she's or she lives in New York. She still does. And she we sort of came across or we didn't actually tell her about um, our IVF troubles at yeah. all. And, and it wasn't until she came over visiting at Christmas time and we'd hidden all the IVF stuff around the house because we didn't want to tell anyone. And, and she found um, a surrogacy branded pen on the bench and sort of asked, what on earth is this about? And, and Tom told her what had happened. And um, she, believe it or not, she actually had had a dream that she was our surrogate. So she had had that six months before, and that was before we even knew we needed a surrogate. So it kind of just unraveled from there. And she offered on the spot, she'd actually already been to her OBGYN in New York already and got the all clear. So at the point of offering, she had talked to her husband, and she'd talked to her doctor and knew she wanted to do it. She was very determined to do it as well. Wonderful. Yeah. And again, just what's the moral of that story? Leave pens lying around? No. Oh, <laughs> to have a chat with people. Just like I think, people. yeah, I think that's the key thing is that you just let people know what's going on. But that was very, very hard for me because I was struggling to deal with that trauma myself, I guess. So so I didn't want too many people to know because I was dealing with it myself. That'd be fairly common for any of the intended mums listening here tonight too. It's yeah. a private thing that people go through. So we'll come back to that a little bit more, I'm sure. So let's, I guess we'll fast forward a bit. So then um, Sarah's offered and then you go through the process um, of the counselling and legals of, of how that works in Australia. And then I guess then we're here we've got the photos. So it worked first embryo transfer, is that right? Yeah, so she came over for a quick two-week trip and she had, her husband and little boy stayed in New York because he went to school. And so she brought her little daughter, who's the little 18-month-year-old who, who squeezed her way into the transfer room. Um, yeah, it worked first go. So it was, it was amazing. It, it sort of blows your mind that after uh, that many transfers trying, because I was thinking maybe it's our embryos, you know, but, you know, when it happens first go with a surrogate, you kind of go... Wow, yeah. <laughs> that's incredible. I do have something wrong. <laughs> we had a juicy womb, as I like to yeah. say. <laughs> but yeah, it was great. It was, it was the, the, the transfer was one of the highlights. It was such an amazing experience just to sit there and all be in the room together and experience that and see this tiny little embryo just 
in 15 minutes go in <laughs> and and yeah. and you can say that she got pregnant for the third time and her husband wasn't even in the room that's right <laughs> and <laughs> you know <laughs> that's right same here I had two gay boys in the room you know yeah yeah it's definitely a unique story that's for sure yeah. and what a story and so then here we've got some of the scans that were happening once she's back home and so yep. she got monitored in did like a clinic take her under the, their wing or she had some midwives she, yeah, she had her um, OBGYN in New York. So she gave birth to both her babies there. So she had the same same doctor there who, who managed her pregnancy. So, you know, this was pre-COVID too. So we were allowed to FaceTime in to the scans, which was great. Yeah, and I think that for us, that heartbeat one was really important because for us, we never got that. So we went to our heartbeat scan and, and there was nothing. So we were very, very nervous about history repeating itself there. But sure enough, there's a beautiful, even like the uterus was in the shape of a heart. You can see in that left picture, which is incredible. It was lovely. And I'm sure that's really common for people to be nervous at different points. If women listening who have got to different points in a pregnancy, you know, you would carry those nerves and trying to balance that out between being excited for Sarah and, and the team and also managing yep. your, all the feelings. Yeah, protecting yourself. Yeah, just in case it happens again. Yeah, it's it's so complex, isn't it? Yeah. And so then this is at about 14 weeks pregnant? Your wedding, This is your wedding? Yeah, so yeah, they came back um, and we got married. We knew the gender at that point. So, cause my, I actually got my family to do a little surprise for us to tell us what the gender was. And so we did just did it at the, at a little ceremony there. So they, so they would know what we were having. And it was a little girl. Wonderful. That's a, yeah. And look at the expression on her face. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. She was convinced it was a boy. So. <laughs> yeah. And the photo of the two of you there, you know, hand on her tummy there. And yeah. What a story these surrogate babies have to tell, you know, yeah. Every, together to create their lives and then they finally flew to Australia and then they yeah. were in hotel quarantine in it well is it was it an apartment quarantine or is that a hotel that uh, an apartment so we we tried to get exemption for them but it was right at the height of you know Melbourne going into their big lockdown and and they everyone was no no you must do hotel quarantine so they have special quarantine for medical reasons so they managed to go into some service departments had a three-bedroom apartment that was 10 minutes from us so we'd deliver food coffees games toys everything every day <laughs> just to help them through that two-week period and this oh, was I the mean, greatest I'm... moment of my life <laughs> tell us about it so this was um in the birth suite in um in the hospital and the the birth I think Sarah, Sarah said to us, strap in, this will be long. My births were, you know, 20 to 30 hours. Um, and I think the the time on the birth sheet was an hour, 24 minutes um, for her. For It was very, very quick, the, the second stage of labor. It just happened so quickly. And suddenly Bonnie was there, well, a little girl was there and, I think the emotion in the room was um, was incredibly overwhelming. There wasn't a dry eye in the room. Yeah, the, the birth is something that oh, I, I just can't even begin to explain how special it is. And I think everyone in the hospital too, they don't generally see surrogacy births. So we had people popping in all the time going, how is everyone, you know, has she been born yet? And they all wanted to know what was going on. And yeah, it was it was incredible wonderful yeah as you say for the staff there too it's not something they get would see on a regular shift and no <laughs> and usually they're very joyful births because there's so many people yeah this little baby here um and to share yeah. that 
and and to be t- teaching the new parents about how to you know manage with a newborn and but then also checking the recovery of the surrogate too so there's there's lots yep. going on so then this is one of your t- first team photos I'd imagine yep yep this was just after she was born so yeah she went straight on to to Sarah and and um which was lovely I actually like that was never planned it was we were just going to see what happened and I think it all just naturally happened the way it was supposed to so she was straight on Sarah and then Tom got to cut the cord and then yeah then she came to me after that it was actually great because I got to see her you know see her face and yeah rather than sort of holding a baby I, I just could look at her and and take it all in which was lovely and I'm sure for those listening, you know, at the very beginning of their journey, trying to imagine this moment, they might initially go, got to come straight to me. I've got to have that first cuddle. And then I think by the end of it, you often go, I'm going to have this baby forever. And you learn a lot about if, if you're not familiar with women and birthing and how it's actually quite physiologically beneficial to the birthing woman to have those cuddles for post-birth reasons and then also for the emotional payment for the surrogate this is sort of like lion king handing over simba moment that we often all dream (laughs) (laughs) i think that's the moment sarah dreamt of although i think she was just like oh my god this is amazing so she didn't get the the handing over but it was yeah it was still yeah incredible because she got to watch us hold her for the first time beautiful and then skin to skin our first cuddles pretty incredible yeah it was so incredible it still feels so surreal you know you're you're in this room watching someone give birth which is quite actually traumatic when it's someone that you love as well like they're in pain and then and then suddenly this baby's there and um and then you you hold her and it was like oh my god she's mine (laughs) and it's like there's it it just takes a long time to sink in yeah it was it was amazing yeah, and you're like, right, I'm responsible now, right? Okay. Yeah, what do I do? What do I do? <laughs> I did have one of the other couch photos of you all before Bonnie was born. And then here's one of the photos of you all with her there, part of the family picture. Yeah, so this was within sort of two weeks of her being born. Um, yeah, we just got professional photos done just so that we could capture that moment. Yeah, that's lovely. And then they went home. How many weeks post-birth did they go home? Yeah, so it was only three weeks. So they had three weeks here and then um, back to the US because um, there was school to start. So they went back and then, yeah, this is this is um, Bonnie showing her crawling skills to, to the family. <laughs> so we do a lot of that at the moment, which is so nice. So you, you probably haven't seen them in person since then? No, no, we've not been allowed to travel and vice versa. So it'll be next year, definitely next year. We just got to work out how and when. And then birth certificate here coming through with names on it. Yep. Yep. That, that was an incredible moment. Like just to see that, even though she was ours, we knew she was ours just to have that formality was really special. And then for me as a surrogate, because I've just down here, I've got a copy of all three of my children's birth certificates. So, because the first birth certificate gets issued, so it's still around. And then it gets, for those listening, um, the original is also kept at births, deaths and marriages. And there's probably a note on the bottom of the new one that gets drawn up saying more information is kept, or it might even have it on the back, depending on your state, birth by a surrogate or something like that. Yeah, they're each special documents to have, I think, for every team. Yeah. And then um, isolation birthday. <laughs> yeah, first birthday. So we, we couldn't really celebrate, her, you know, a baby shower or anything. Everything was locked down, which was a shame. So and then her first birthday was two weeks after the Sydney lockdown started in June. Like it was, I think it started in June, July. And so, yeah, her birthday was August. So we had a party of three in the backyard. 
with a really big cake. <laughs> From the birthday cake book, if everybody's familiar. Yeah, with the it. Women's Weekly cake. <laughs> I saw one asked in chat and it said, even though we, you have partly answered it, it said, did you consider international or commercial surrogacy at all or did you find your surrogate easily? Although we've probably discussed that bit about finding your surrogate easily because somebody offered once they knew your story, your sister-in-law, well, you're now on a sibling journey, I hear. And so... Yeah, and, and even before even before Sarah offered, I when I joined ASC, I was looking into um, domestic surrogacy, but I also looked into international. So I looked at um, the US and I looked at Ukraine as well. So um, I was open to all options because I just didn't know how easy or hard each one was. So I wanted to, to sort of get the info for everything and then kind of work out which way I wanted to go. And I, and I did want to go domestic for that first journey because I, I don't know why other than I just, I wanted to be close to, to that pregnancy and I ended up being as far away as possible. <laughs> but yeah, so we, we are doing a sibling journey um, in the US. We're in the very early stages of um, matching with the surrogate in the US. So, so I can have the other side, yeah, the, the US where it's actual baby, if hopefully we have a baby, uh, would be born in the US. And how many embryos have you got? Uh, so this is probably why I chose to go um, uh, international is because I've only got two, two um, tested embryos left. Mm -hmm. So, um, and one untested. So I, I tried three more times to make more embryos and didn't have any luck so when I couldn't make any more I sort of we, we made the call to do it overseas um, and, and mainly just I guess it's the speed of being able to do it because I wanted to have potentially children close in age but also I, I wanted to get the best possible chance it's a very much a business oh. over there they do it so often it's like a well-oiled machine over there so what makes, challenging question here what makes you think medically it's more successful over there than it is here uh, some of the stats that I've I've looked at with the clinics because they have stats here. We don't. That's no. <laughs> part of the problem. So that's the problem is that in the US you actually you there's a database where you can actually go and look at clinics and look at all their statistics and you can look at your your situations and and choose based on you know choose a clinic even based on their their records and their their stats. So that was. That was something I'd always, I'd looked at as well. And I'll say boldly, um, as somebody that's known you for a couple of years and we've had chats and, mm. and that uh, philosophically, you are somebody who fits the altruistic model. You are somebody that absolutely believes yep. in the relationship. So I know that you will make your commercial arrangement about a relationship. And so in yep. some ways it's, you, it's like, no, we want to keep you here as an intended mum. I know of surrogates <laughs> were talking on the side about you, Trudy. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I suppose to help people listening tonight understand how do you, you know, what advice would you give to somebody who is, you know, on the fence about which one, you know, partly to me, I think it would be not everyone can afford it financially, but it, uh, is it something that if you can, you would encourage people to look into yeah. or to work your options? What would you say to people? You've got to try to work out what your priorities are. And time is a really, really big one. And I think if you're going to go somewhere like the US or Ukraine, you're almost guaranteed a surrogate. And that for me was a big part of it. Whereas in Australia, I, I had explored my family and friends and, you know, many, many options there. And, and I'd, I'd exhausted those options, I, sh I guess I should say, once you've done the first journey. I, from a time perspective, if, if we did 
go through and these three embryos failed, at least I could potentially quickly do another couple of egg retrievals if I was absolutely willing to again, just I think in the altruistic model, that could have been years down the track, which would have been past, I, I'm 43 in January. So I have a, you know, a window that's very quickly closing. So, so that time was a big thing for me. And the fact that I only had these two, two left. And would you have considered donor eggs? Uh, yes, I, I, I think so. Um, I did it the first at, at the beginning. Now that I've got Bonnie, I'm actually not quite sure. I think, mm. I think um, I'd actually be quite happy with just her if we didn't have um, another sibling because she's incredible. <laughs> so I, yeah, I gave it your best shot. That, that's exactly right. Yeah, yeah. I, no one can say I haven't tried. <laughs> Brooke, yes, the US clinic success rates are available publicly. So um, yeah, I'm sure you can look some of those up. We'll go into some of the other questions that we've got here. In no particular order, um, an anonymous question is, do you still take the baby home from the hospital before the parentage has been transferred? It's funny, I've got a video of Sarah, the minute the um, cord was cut, she's like, my responsibilities are over. <laughs> she said, she's yours. <laughs> I mean, legally, the baby is was my sister-in-law's. So, I mean, the hospital are obviously aware of the arrangement that we've got and that it's a surrogacy arrangement. So they allow you to take that baby home because they're aware of it being a surrogacy arrangement. But yeah, you definitely, the minute the minute she's born, she was in my care. We, Sarah went off to, to sort of her separate room and got to have a good night's sleep on that first night. Yeah. <laughs> So yes, if you're brand new and listening to this, yes, the IPs take charge of the baby, so to speak, from birth. Often you're a team and you're seeing each other and spending still a lot of time together and the surrogate might feed it from a bottle or maybe from the breast, depending on, on the team situation there. But then often when it cries, she can hand it back to you and you deal with all the nappies and learning how to do all the new parent things. I guess just one thing from a legal perspective, if the baby did need some surgery in those early weeks, legally the surrogate is the parent. So she would be the one to sign permission to do the surgery. So those sorts of things. Mm -hmm. But again, the hospitals are very aware of, of what's going on and that, you know, when they ask questions about the child, they go to Trudy and Tom to ask them, you know, about what they want to do in, in that hospital for yeah. the they don't go asking Sarah. So that's why it's really important that um, hospitals, we're educating them along the way as they get more experienced in surrogacy too. So another yep. question, intended parents are asking, curious to know if surrogates can opt to have a C-section and if there are any rules around that or, or would it be normal circumstances? Is that something your team discussed, Trudy? Yes, it's definitely an option. So Sarah could have said that that's what she wanted to do, but um, she'd had two vaginal births, so she wanted to, to do another one. But if if she wanted a, a C-section, we were very much under the, however she wants to have that baby, that's, that's how we would, we would support her in whatever decision that she had. So uh, that she made. So I think, yeah, Sarah didn't want a C-section. Like she was pretty adamant. She didn't want one, but for example, you know, in the U S a lot of the times surrogates want a C-section. Yeah. So it's, it's actually quite common to have mm. a C-section. So it's yeah. really up to the surrogate and, and the, obviously the obstetrician who's, who's looking after them. That's true. And so, and often cesareans are easy, easier to schedule because everybody knows when birthday's happening. Whereas when you don't know when you're going to go into labor or I suppose if you're induced, then you can plan it a little bit more, but um, that's the, the craziness and the fun. So yes, um, surrogates can choose to have an elective C-section if they want. Um, it might depend on how many others that they've had. It's not a forced thing that has to happen in surrogacy by any 
Another question here, are there any rules specific to IPs based in New South Wales that aren't applicable to other states? Again, in SAS, I have a, a list that I've got the order of every state and all the steps. You didn't have a psych assessment in New South Wales, did you, with an independent psych? Uh, not an independent psych, but we did have a, a, an assessment as part of our counselling. Right. So that was, uh, we did Katrina Hale and she did a, a, an assessment there. Yeah, it wasn't a legal thing, but the clinic sometimes has additional requirements. So we had to do additional counselling through our clinic. Um, but I'm just trying to think, I don't know any other no. specific legal things that I've were got different. Else. New South Wales and Queensland are very similar. So, yeah. so no, nothing else uh, for New South Wales. I don't think so. I can think of in my five years and I've now collected all together. So nothing major strikes out to me. Mm. So then a so, question mm -hmm. here from Nicole, does it matter on the age of IPs? You're 45, sorry, 48 with three adult children and would like to have a family with your second husband as he doesn't have any. My knowledge for IPs is, and for surrogates, there's, there's no official law on the age, it's often the IVF clinics might have an internal rule where the IPs might need to be less than 52. Is that a number that you've heard, Trudy, or early 50s? Uh, I think a surrogate has to be less oh. than 52, but I think um, like some clinics actually have a 45-year limit. Some have no limit. So it just depends on the clinic. I wouldn't see it as a as a problem. You just would go to a few different clinics to try to see who's willing to work with you. Yes, so that's a great question. So, Nicole, if you don't have an IVF clinic already, tee up with one. And that's one of your first questions to ask them because yeah. it go by their rules. If they go, no, we're not putting, you know, I don't care if your surrogate's 30, if they have a rule on that. But there's no law in Australia that has a limit for IP. So I hope that helps give you a little bit of hope there tonight, Nicole. Judith asks, um, what's the process for harvesting eggs from the donor? Is it intrusive and exactly what happens? Is it a one-time process? So Judith, I'm guessing you're asking that you perhaps haven't been through IVF yourself. Trudy, do you want to give a brief summary of... I think I did 11 egg retrievals. Wow. So I've done my fair share. It is quite an intense process. So it's all based on your, your cycle. So on day one of your cycle is when it starts. And then you do, do lots of blood tests, lots of ultrasounds. And then you, you do a lot of injections of hormones. So you do that over a period of you know, usually 12 days maximum. And then um, once you, you get the ultrasounds to check how many eggs you've got in your ovaries, and then at some point when the, the eggs are big enough, they'll trigger you. And then 36 hours later, they, sorry, they trigger you with uh, an injection. And then 36 hours later, you'll have your usually surgery um, with, a, I've had it once with where you don't have I think it's called a twilight where you're actually awake for it. Um, but most of them you're under general anesthetic, uh, which is definitely a preference. And, and then, yeah, they take the eggs out and then it, the whole process, I think, in the surgery is no more than sort of 15, 30 minutes. And then it's just a, a bit of a recovery from bloating and um, a little bit of un, uh, discomfort afterwards. It, it's an intense process in terms of the hormone levels that you're injecting into yourself. So some people feel, you know, don't have any don't feel any different whereas some people ride a lot of kind of roller coasters of emotions through it so I was the one of these yeah, sure <laughs> unfortunately yeah so it's intense so I hope that helps um to sum it up and then I suppose that they they grow them in the lab up until five days once they've injected them with the sperm and then to check that the embryos the cells are dividing and that they become a blast yep. and and then that gets stored in the freezer for up to 10 years or more, if you like. And one anonymous has asked, do they have to be PGD tested before putting into a surrogate? In Australia, no, you don't. Maybe 
more so in the States, not sure, but um, no, that's that's how it rolls here um, in Australia. Some people do testing, some don't. Some have different thoughts on all of that. So that's answered that question there. We've got a couple more. I might do the costs one. I'll give you a rank and then Trudy, you tell us your costs. So yeah, um, I'm willing to tell that one because it's it's part of the journey. <laughs> From my data gathering, um, you're looking at a, an average of about 55 to 60,000. Baker cost his dad 60,000, range from 35,000 up to 80, 90,000. Mind you, if you've got an overseas team, you could be up at the high end. So who would be at the low end and do it for about 35,000? If you perhaps already have embryos made before surrogacy, um, because once you mention surrogacy, you often don't get Medicare rebates. So try as best you can under fertility preservation um, to get those embryos made. Or if you're gay guys listening and have an egg donor, some clinics now are open to that. So that's that's a good progress we've made. If your surrogate lives locally to you and you don't have much interstate travel or accommodation costs you have to pay for, if it worked first embryo transfer, and if you didn't have to pay many loss of wages for her, that could be down at the lower end, which ties me into one question that I saw there. Um, maternity leave. This is the one thing in surrogacy that's double dipping and we love it because it's not going to break the system. Mm -hmm. Pay parental leave. If uh, two people are entitled to it for the one child. So the surrogate is entitled to pay parental leave if she meets the work test. And if in her own workplace she gets maternity leave, um, then she's entitled to that full leave. And so is the primary carer. So the parent that stays home, they too, if their workplace has maternity or paternity leave, get that and the paid parental leave. Hope that answers that question who Anonymous asked about that. And so then up at the upper end of costs, 80, 90,000, I mean, no guarantee of these things. Um, if you had to do multiple um, egg collection cycles and then multiple embryo transfers, that's costing quite a few thousands of dollars each time. If you had interstate travel and if your surrogate perhaps had loss of wages, you'd be up there. So I'm guessing, Trudy, even though they're family, you know, and they might have come for a holiday, I suppose, because they're surrogacy related, you were paying for the travel costs and, you know, need, yeah. need to bring the four family out, you know, for this. So what was your figure? So if, if I took all my IV out, IVF out of it, because I've done way too many of those to include, the, the actual surrogacy part was probably about between 45 and um, 50,000. So it was actually quite reasonable. A lot of that was actually probably due to to COVID being around. So there was, you know, six months of the pregnancy where nothing could, they couldn't do anything. You couldn't really, you know, get cleaners. You couldn't do anything like that. Part of the pregnancy, they actually left and went to live out of state with family. So that probably made a big difference to us. Um, and that we were going to travel over there and we just didn't do that. So probably would have been a lot higher. Just the, the surrogacy costs itself and birth, probably, yeah, just under 50,000. The yeah. IVF, double that. Triple that. <laughs> and let me ask a bold question. How much do you think you might expect to pay to do an American surrogacy journey once you've done accommodation and travel back and stuff? I have a number that I think it is, but do you have a rough number that you're planning for? Yeah, I reckon it's in the 200,000, I think. Yeah. Yep. So, so we appreciate that this is not accessible to everyone and um, even sorry no. Australia it's not a it's not something everybody will be able to afford one thing I will point out 
that even for the domestic surrogacy, you know, for my team, it was two and a half years from meeting till birth. So that, that 60000 that the boys paid did not come in a lump sum. And so you keep, you continue to earn income and, and you can save. And for me, it was important to know they had a backup plan in case, you know, there was something major that cropped up. I had met the parents. And so I knew that they would spot them for five or $10,000, you know, if at a pinch, if they needed it. So yes, have a nest egg. Um, and it means you probably adjust your life for a while. You don't do any major holidays or travel, that sort of thing. You're saving and focusing on surrogacy. Pace it out. Um, it, it is achievable there in that sense. Brooke's question here. Um, so Brooke's had a hysterectomy, but still has her ovaries, but doesn't have a period. Are the clinics able to figure out when to start IVF cycles without knowing a period start date? Absolutely. Like there's, you know, one of the reasons for surrogacy is um, MRKH and yeah, it's, it's a, a series of blood tests. So I'm pretty sure it's the ovaries, the pituitary glands that excrete the hormone that tells us where you are in the cycle as well. So even though you don't get the period, you would still be ovulating because you've got ovaries. So they'll be able to time that with your, with your blood tests very easily. So that's a good question to ask. So Brooke and, and others, I hope that's been really helpful to ask those questions um, here tonight. Having gone through this whole journey, you know, and that had hard times, what's something that you learned about yourself having gone through this? That I'm way more resilient that, than I ever thought I would be. And I think when you go through just the infertility journey, you have this empathy for other people in similar situations that, you know, you, you just never know what people are going through. And I think you make, we made such an effort to, I guess, hide a lot of what was going on from our work, from, you know, friends a lot of the time. It's amazing how difficult that is, but how, how many other people are actually going through it. So joining the surrogacy community was the best thing I did because I thought I was alone and one of the only people in Australia for this to happen to. And then suddenly uh, an entire community opened up that were in similar situations and it wasn't as rare a condition that I thought. So yeah, I think, yeah, I'm, I'm a lot more determined than I thought I was and, and resilient, definitely. And I got and good so then project management skills to, <laughs> to manage a journey like that. Yeah. And so what, any parting advice then? You're saying to, you know, engage in a community and find out that you're not alone. Any advice for people starting out? I think talk like talking to people. I I would talk to, and I still do talk to a lot of people on on Facebook just through the community about um, like answering their questions. And because it's because people did that to me when I was first starting out in my journey, is I'd, I'd find someone that was going through something similar. And I, you know, we'd just start talking and it was really, really great just to, this is such a, a lonely kind of journey to be on as well. So to find someone else that has a similar journey is, is incredible. And I, I made a friend through the community who, you know, we, we talked to each other on Facebook, you know, every second day, probably only met each other three times and we're just following each other's journey. We know more about each other's journey than anyone, anyone would. So I think having that, those friendships and, and those people to talk to is really, really helpful and can help you navigate this scary world. Thank you for joining me. On our YouTube channel, you will find many other episodes as well as the images mentioned in this webinar. If you're looking for more resources, check out the show notes for this episode and consider joining us in one of our webinars so you can have your questions answered on the spot. Please subscribe to this podcast if you found it valuable and share it with someone so they too can benefit from this conversation. Until next time, welcome to the village.